Welcome to the Hot Chicks Write Hot Books podcast with Jen Foster and Melanie Johnson, where authors give you their inside secret tips on how to be a successful best-selling author. Here, Melanie Johnson, along with my co-host, uh, Jen Foster, and we have a very special guest today, but before we get to that, I just want to let you know we have a couple announcements. One is we are going to have our other book writing retreat that's coming up in December. Our last retreat was a huge success. 100% of our authors became number one bestsellers, so we're really excited about that, and we'd like to do that for you, too. Come and join us in the Dominican Republic at the Villa, and it's fabulous. We have another special thing coming up that Jen and I are going to be doing uh, video training sessions. So we're going to teach you from all the knowledge that we have and things that we do on our retreat that you can do at home and learn how to become an author and a bestseller as well. So check your email box. That'll be coming up in another week or so. So today we are so honored to have mayoral candidate Bill King with us from Houston. He has written not one but two books. His latest book is Unapologetically Moderate, and it is really a great book. I love a lot of different things and the points that he brings out about uh, um, about politics in that book. So we're thrilled to have you today. Uh, welcome, Bill. Thanks for being an honorary hot chick and a hot guy joining us today. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from, and uh, just give us a little lowdown of who Bill King is. Yeah, so um, I was born down in northern Galveston County. I've been around the Houston area my entire life, and uh, I went to law school at the University of Houston and really spent my whole business career as a, uh, as a businessman and a lawyer. And then, uh, but I've always enjoyed writing, and um, so my first foray into writing was uh, in the middle 2000s somewhere. I, had, I decided I wanted to write about the experience I'd had in the savings and loan business back in Houston in the 80s and the 90s. It was a traumatic experience, and, uh, and I felt like I just needed to tell the story because I, never, I, did, I didn't feel like the true story of the savings and loan crisis had ever been told. So I wrote that book, and it, was, uh, uh, it, it got some acclaim, uh, and some critical acclaim. And so then I, um, uh, in 2005, uh, actually, 2004, I wrote a op-ed for the Houston Chronicle about hurricane evacuation. I sent it in blind, and uh, it was 2,500 words, which is, uh, for those of you that do op-eds, know that's way too long for an op-ed. I had no idea that at the time. That was almost a small book. Yeah, and so the uh, the Chronicle called me up, and they said they were going to run it as is, the whole 2,500 words, mm. and which they did in September of 2004, in which I basically sort of laid out that the, um, uh, the Houston area wasn't ready to evacuate in the, in the event of a major hurricane. Um, and, and so what we wrote that, and the Chronicle did some follow-up. Then in 2005, of course, we had the disastrous re-evacuation, and pretty much what I'd written in the September 14 article came to pass, and so the Chronicle said, well, you know, that was pretty good. Can you write about anything else? And so they asked me to start writing, and I wrote once a month, and then... It was twice a month, and then when I when I stopped uh, to to, to uh, have the mayor's campaign last uh, earlier this year, I was writing twice a week for them. Uh, and the book, the unapologetically moderate, is a compilation of about 120 of the columns from the Houston Chronicle. Would you have considered yourself a writer growing up? I mean, so is this something that just kind of was in your heart and came out? Uh, I've always loved writing. I've never. I didn't really have any particular training in it other than just the regular stuff you go through school, but I've always enjoyed writing. 
and um, uh, and so I've always kind of considered myself a closet writer, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Chronicle really gave me a voice to to go do that in a way that uh, was great because I, I had you know had a very large audience. So how did you go about starting to write? I mean, you said you just decided to write about the the twenty five hundred words. How did you go about just starting to do that? Well, so I'd been um, there was a, there was a hurricane. I was actually the mayor of Keene at the time. And there was a hurricane that came up to the Gulf Coast and then and then turned off the last minute. Uh, and and we actually thought about evacuating the region. This was in 2002. And um, and, it, and it was obvious from that experience that we weren't prepared to evacuate the Houston area. And so I started talking about that and, and, and visiting with various people and giving some speeches about it. And I was just frustrated that nobody was doing anything about it. So I did what we do in America. I went to the press. And I went to the press by, you know, uh, writing this op-ed. And basically, I just laid out the case that I developed over a couple of years about how we weren't prepared to evacuate the area and what I thought would happen. Uh -huh. And I think, I, I think that that's, you know, being a lawyer, I think every lawyer is a frustrated author <laughs> at heart because <laughs> we spend all day, you know, working with words and laying out arguments. And so in an editorial column like I wrote, it was a lot like my legal writing, and not as stylistic, obviously, but mm -hmm. and more conversational in tone. But basically, every article, every column was laying out an argument about some public policy issue. And so that's really how I, how I went at that. Now, how do you uh, like to write? Do you like to be in a quiet space? Do you feel like when you had to, when you did your book, you went away and wanted to spend a weekend just writing, or do you like uh, verbalize notes and then put it together? Yes. Give our, to give some writers some tips about you know some ideas of how they would go about it. What yeah, works for you? I don't know that my I don't know that my style is going to be particularly helpful to anybody else. But I wake up really early in the morning, and uh, and I wake up thinking about things. And so I mean, a lot of times I'll wake up and I and there's just a whole bunch of ideas, and I I basically just jump out of bed and rush to my computer to try to get the ideas down as fast as I can. I would say probably 90% 90, 90 of my columns are written between about 5.30 and 7 in the morning. <laughs> that's great. Fresh mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's that was my process. I'm not sure it's good for anybody else. <laughs> so you just pour out all your ideas and then do you go back and organize them from them or just then or just edit after that? So I, I wrote it as kind of stream of consciousness just as fast as I could get it down. Um, and when you do that, of course, you're always uh, it's, it's always overly verbose, and it's and, and you're and you're duplicating and using a lot of words you don't need to use. And so basically, you know, my column was 800 words, and so I would generally write something, and it would be a thousand or 1,200 words, and I would spend you know the next day or two chopping that down and reorganizing it and trying to get it down to the 800 word hard stop I had. Mm -hmm. What advice, like what do's and don'ts would you give an author as they're trying to get their books together? Um, I mean, I love that you know you know when your brain is working at its best and when you get your ideas out, like you have that zone of time. Um, is there anything you would say not to do or to do? You know, I, what I found was that if I wasn't in the mood to write, it was kind of a waste of time to try to sit you know, and force myself to do it. And and the, the language came to me and the ideas I don't think were particularly fresh. It was when... It was when there was something that inspired me. And I think that, that one of the things that's uh, important for a writer, and at least the kind of writing I did, is get out in the real world and experience A lot of the stuff I wrote about were sort of dry statistics, research I'd done on the internet, but generally 
they were um, uh, they were inspired by a particular event. And I'll give you one example. Um, I was in New York um, uh, a few years ago, uh, walking down Fifth Avenue, and it was uh, I was up there for the holidays. It was December. It was cold, and I was walking along. And I heard some mumbling off to the side of me, and I looked over, and there was a homeless woman there who was uh, uh, was on a grate trying to stay warm, and uh, obviously had some kind of severe mental illness. I suspect it was schizophrenia, based on it. And she bore a remarkable resemblance to my mother, and I mean, it just stopped me cold on the street, and I just stood there for a couple of minutes. And so out of that experience, I came back and I did a whole bunch of research on mental illness. Why are these people on the street? And it ended up being uh, six or seven columns, and I think probably some of the best work I ever did in that column. But it was inspired by a particular event. So I think it's important that you got to make that you got to make that human connection uh, mm -hmm. with the reader. And when I would write about mental health, we always put my email address at the end of the column. And so I would get, especially in the mental health, I would get these heartbreaking emails from parents, uh, mostly parents who had adult children with some kind of severe mental illness, talking about how difficult that was and the fact that, you know, there's very little help for those kind of people and the fact that you can't really get access to their medical records once they become an adult and all the problems that are associated with that. And I think that that connection with people and real problems uh, because I, I wrote a lot about statistics, I wrote a lot about public finance, and that connected it to how these numbers actually affect people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's great. You know, one thing that you've done that I really admire is you've taken work that you've done and combined it all into, like you said, your last book is previous columns. So repurposing that content is so smart, and I love that you did that for your book. A lot of people just write stuff and never publish it in a book, so I think that's great. Yeah, I actually had a lot of people ask me to do that, uh, and a lot of people said, why don't you take that? And uh, we, it was so funny when I was sitting down working with my editor on the book and the publisher, we were talking about um, how many columns do you need to have a book? And they, she said, you know, probably something between 100 and 120 or something. She said, do you have that? And I said, well, you know, I've never counted. I'm sure I've got more than that, but I don't really know for sure. So we went back and looked. By the time I stopped writing and getting the marriage race, I'd written about 500 columns in op edits. And so oh it was word. a little surprising. I mean, it was quite that much material. <laughs> so i got three That's more great. posts. <laughs> That's great. How did you go about going from having your book and figuring out how to publish it and that whole process? Well, I'd been through the process a little bit uh, before when I published my first book, which was basically sort of a vanity uh, publishing. This time, since I was a little better known, I had then I got you know uh, I got a local publisher uh, here in Houston who was who was willing to take it on and do the project. But I think the fact you know once you're once you're published in the newspaper on a regular basis, then it's a little bit easier to get these things done than uh, like when I did my first book when nobody knew who I was. So how did you publish the first one? What did you do? What were the steps you went I through then? Self, I self-published it. I hired a guy that had uh, helped, uh, actually helped, had helped President Bush with a couple of books, and he kind of walked me through the whole process. And then um, when you did that first book, were you the mayor of Kima yet, or was it before then? I was already after. It was, uh, it was after I stepped down. I stepped down to mayor of, uh, from Kima in 2005, and I wrote that book, I guess, probably in about 2007 or 2008. 
Okay, so you pretty much had like a following or had people that you could promote it to, right? Um, I mean, did you well, send it out yeah, um, media campaign with the book to try and sell it? So that, that book was such a special interest uh, kind of book. There were a lot of people that had been through that experience like I had, especially in Houston. Mm -hmm. And so that was primarily the people that were interested in doing it. And it was and all around the country. There were so many people that were in the savings and loan business that 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 had um, had some tough times back then and sort of shared my view that it was kind of more the government's fault than it was anything else. So there were a lot of people that wanted to. Uh, they were they were were happy to have somebody voice that viewpoint for them. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, uh, have you marketed your book more than just offline? Do you do online to market your book and get people to buy your book? Yeah. So um, the uh, both books are on Amazon, and uh, the uh, the first book we had had its own website page, which is still up. And then Bright Star, who published the second book, uh, sells the book through their website. Oh, that's great. That's great. I was just going to say, we'll have our listeners go ahead and go to your website. So where can they find that book, that book website? Um, so the, for uh, Unapologetically Modern, they can go to the Bright Star uh, website, uh, which is a publisher here in Houston, or it's available on Amazon. Okay. And then what about your original book? You said you still have that website up. Where is that? Yeah, so it's it's also available on Amazon, but there's also, um, I believe it's uh, www.savingface.com. The first book's, the name of the book was Saving Face. So out of your book, tell me um, some of your favorite things that you want the reader to get out of your book. Well, I think the, the two big themes of the book, uh, of, the, of my columns over the years, and I think we tried to edit the columns to express it. I think there's, there's two things going on in the world today that, uh, uh, that are causing a lot of issues, and uh, we have a lot of public policy arguments that sort of mask these, these big things. And one is that we are um, uh, we have this, this tremendous change going on where the, um, uh, for, for the entire history of mankind, we've had a lot of young people taking care of a very few older people. And because we're living so much longer, and because the birth rates are dropping so dramatically around the world, we, uh, uh, we, don't have, um, uh, we don't have nearly as many young people to take care of, of, of more older people. And that's going to fundamentally change society. Uh, for all time because it's not going to change. Mm -hmm. We also have the reality that our population is going into a long-term uh, slowing phase. Demographers tell us that the world population will pop out in about 2050, somewhere around 9 billion people. And from then on, we're going to be having long-term population decline. And again, this is something that is unprecedented in human history. And so you, it, it changes all sorts of things. And sort of the leading edge of that is this crisis that we're having in health care and retirement income. Now, all these problems that we're having with pensions with Social Security are all driven by the fact that you know, when we adopted Social Security in the, in the 30s, you know, life expectancy at 65 was about 68. I mean, you know, you, this, was a, this was a little bit of retirement just in the last two or three years before you died. Today, life expectancy at 65 is 84. Uh, it's gone up 10 years in just the last 20 years. So this is a fundamental difference in, you know, in the math of all of this. 
At the same time, we've had this other incredible medical advance, which not only allows us to live longer, but it also creates the opportunity to live so much, uh, uh, so much fuller life. And I'll give you an example. Um, take knee and hip replacements. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, I didn't know anybody who had done that. Now every one of my friends has had one done, you know. And that's wonderful. It's great that we have that medical technology, but all that costs money. And so the reality is we're all going to have to work longer and save more for our retirement than we ever thought we had to before. And we're, and we're just going through that transition. And there's a, a, a jillion other things that's going to affect in society. And, and, and we keep, you know, in this very partisan world that we live in, we keep blaming the other party. We keep saying it's all about, you know, it's all about people don't want to work or this or that or something else. And we're ignoring this fundamental demographic change because it's so hard to deal with. It's just not an easy thing to come to grips with. And that's what a lot of my book is about. Yeah, people are working. Uh, you're having to work longer. I mean, look at, I mean, yeah. people are still having a vibrant life in their 70s. Mm -hmm. So, and healthcare is going to change. Now, you have a whole section on your book um, about faith. Tell us about that. that. I was very curious about that whole uh, big chapter. I'm sorry, I got lost you for a second. Ask the question again. Um, and you know, are you having? I'm getting echoing on the audio. Is anybody else getting that, or is it just me? Just a little bit. Okay, just want to make sure if there was something we needed to fix along the way. So I noticed in your book you have a whole section um, really on faith. Um, one of the titles was uh, Don't Pray in Public, and you have a lot of references to uh, religion. So uh, tell me about what's the content in there. Yeah, so I grew up in a pretty religious household, and um, the um, uh, and so my my upbringing in that faith tradition certainly informs my view about many uh, different issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 always been sort of funny to me that the uh, there are so many things that we hear about Christianity, especially today, that are really not at all consistent with uh, the Scripture and what uh, Jesus' basic teachings were. You know, there's a guy uh, who wrote a book called Unchristian not too long ago, and he was a, a marketing guy that wrote a book about why the church is becoming more unpopular with young people. And the two things that young people said about the church we didn't like was that it was judgmental and that it was uh, political. Well, you know, Jesus said not to judge people, and he said, you know, render under Caesar what Caesar. The two very things that he said Christians are not supposed to be about or the church is not supposed to be about, those are the two things that we're best known for, which I thought was ironic. So when you get to things like uh, praying in public and, and, and people getting up and talking about how they got a right to pray in public, and yeah, sure, that's right. But if you read the New Testament, it says you're not supposed to pray in public. Just go in a closet and pray by yourself because if you're praying out in public, you're doing it for other people and not to talk to God. And so, these, and so I just find so many of the sort of these cultural wars that we get in really have nothing to do with what I think are the true teachings. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Those sound like some great points. Yeah. So tell us now, um, give us your campaign pitch. We want to know what you're going to do for Houston. Why should I vote for Bill King? Well, other than, other than the fact that I'm the tallest, best-looking, and most intelligent candidate in the race, other than that. Yeah, and you're a hot guy now, too. You've been on Hot Chicks. 
Yeah, yeah. keep going for you. And, and modest to go along with that. Yeah. Uh, now, listen, I, I, I love the city. It's just an incredible place. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's America's city of opportunity. People come here from all over the world. You know, Bob Lanier used to say that in Houston, nobody cares who your daddy is, and it's so true. Um, but the truth is, for you know, a decade or more, we have a city government that's not living up to the greatness of the city. Our streets are a mess. Um, crime is, is up in, um, in, uh, in the city, and we're not doing a very effective job of dealing with it. We have um, uh, last year the police department only saw 6% of the burglaries that were committed. We had 30,000 unsolved burglaries and robberies in the city's last year. That's really not acceptable. Um, and, and on top of that, our finances are a mess, notwithstanding the fact we've been through this incredible boom for the last uh, 10 years. And so I'm running to get the city back to basics. I think we've gotten off on some uh, some other agendas that are not the basic reasons that we organize city government. And so I want to get the city back to basics and get those fundamental things that we expect the city to do. How do you think uh, about the financial part of it? Houston has been very fortunate that we've um, been thriving during the time when the rest of the country was not thriving. And like you said, we're in huge amount of debt. Um, what do you plan to do um, to correct that? Well, the, the fundamental problem that the city has is this pension system, like a lot of big cities. Mm -hmm. And this relates back to what we were talking about earlier about the retirement. Uh, these plans are all designed back in the 60s and 70s when you had tremendously different market conditions and tremendously different demographics. And, and they're, they're just not sustainable in the future. It's just not going to work going forward into the future. It's a very emotional, political issue. Nobody wants to touch it. But the truth of the matter is we're going to end up like Detroit and Chicago and some of those cities that are facing very serious problems. We're fortunate that you know uh, our, our financial situation has been so good that we've been um, um, you know, that we've been insulated from it to a large degree. You know, Warren Buffett has this great saying that says uh, uh, that when the tide goes out, you find out who's not wearing a swimsuit. <laughs> and that's kind of that's where we're at in Houston. You know, we had this great economy going on, and we've been able to sort of, you know, keep these problems under the surface. But now with oil down at $40 a barrel or whatever it is today, you know, I'm not sure we're going to keep doing that very much longer. Yeah, what do you think? Um, what do you think the future for Houston's economy is? Since oil has been down and it's kind of affecting a lot of other industries in Houston. Yeah, you know, Jay Paul Getty once said that trying to guess oil prices have bankrupted more people than anything else in history, and I think I think he's probably right about that. Uh, look, I don't know. It's, I do remember painfully uh, the 1980s and 1990s here. We were sitting around one day with oil at thirty dollars a barrel, and about a month later, it was at nine dollars a barrel. And everybody said, "Oh, we come back." Uh, you know, uh, it was uh, survived eight times, but that oil price didn't come back for a decade. It was uh, a decade later they had finally gotten up to twenty dollars a barrel. And so, you know, the oil markets are unpredictable. Unfortunately, we squandered, at least at the city government, squandered this incredible large asset we had. And uh, when we should have been saving money and paying down debt, we were doing exactly the opposite. And so uh, I'm concerned about it. You know, it's one of those things I think you have to, you know, you have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. But um, and the other thing, frankly, that I worry about is we've always had, we've always known this is going to come back sooner or later. We've always known that sooner or later oil prices are going to come back up. But you know, we have some disruptive technologies on the horizon right now 
Um, there's a, a report came out a couple about a year ago that utility scale solar power uh, is probably only four or five years away from being competitive with natural gas. Wow. You ever start figuring out some of those those uh, those disruptive technologies? Look, there. You know, if you got a choice, you're not going to burn hydrocarbons. You know, it's it's not a it's not a very you know it's not a good way to do things. It's just it's, it's, it's the best cheap way to do it. Somebody else figure out a better way to do it. We're going to stop doing that. Fundamentally, change changes the economy forever. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, tell us where people can uh, find you online, the website for Bill King, how they can contribute to your campaign. Um, we already know that they can buy the, your book on Amazon. We're also going to post your book uh, up on our website. So right. if you want to get it, they can get it right from us. So tell us how people can help you and support you. Yeah, so uh, BillKingForHouston.com is our website. There's all kinds of information there. You can uh, sign up for yard signs. You can get a bumper sticker sent to you. And if you're so inclined, you can make a contribution to the campaign. Wonderful. Wonderful. And just for the last thing, if you could tell us uh, why you think our listeners should become an author. Why do you think it's important? Yeah, I th look, we, I think we all have something to say in life. Uh, the only way what you say is going to be remembered is if you write it down. And, you know, one of the reasons I wrote, you know, a lot of things that I wrote, and I've got a lot of private things that I've written, are for my kids and grandkids. I want them to, you know, it's a way that over the generations they'll be able to know something about me and what I thought about things and what kind of person I was. And, you know, that's, uh, that's why we as a race started writing down things in the first place, is to preserve those ideas, preserve that history. And so I think it's important, even if you're not going to be a professional writer, sit down and write things about your own family history so that it's recorded and your kids and grandkids have it. Yeah. That's I love it. Leaving a legacy. Exactly. It's awesome. Well, thank you, Bill, so much for coming today. We really appreciate that you became an official hot guy. <laughs> I don't know one before. Do I, get, do I get a plaque or something? <laughs> I'm like to hang that up and give them all. Official hot guy. Yeah, we might have to write something for you. <laughs> well, we want to remind everyone, again, we've got our retreat coming up in December, um, and it's going to be in the Dominican Republic at a fabulous villa with its own private pool. We have our own chef that comes every day, and you're going to get your book written in a whole week, and we'll get it launched. And uh, if you're like our other uh, authors that came last time, you'll be a number one best-selling author when you come home. And we have our special surprise coming up with our emails. We're going to do video training. Jen and I are with some of our top secret things and things that we've learned and things that we do at our retreat to share with you. And that will be coming up. We'll start sending emails around uh, September 12th. So look for those as well. So, uh, Jen, you got anything you want to tell anybody? Oh, thank you, Bill, for letting us interview you. And good luck on your campaign. Thank you. I'll be looking for you. You know, I'm in Houston, so. I know. I'll be behind you. I got to get your vote. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again. That's it for Hot Chicks, Right Hot Books. See you next time. For more information, you can visit our website at hotchickswritehotbooks.com or you can text your name and email address to 832-572-5285.